So now, O oh Lord, we ask that you would indeed send forth your word. We, we thank you that you have sent forth your word, the very word off um, of your own lips um, to the earth, that you decided to enter into your own creation by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be made flesh and to dwell among us. And so we thank you for his life. We thank you even more for his death and the life that he brings to us through his death and his resurrection. And we ask now that you would make that life manifest in our midst right now, that as we study your word, that you would give us that bread for our journey, the journey that we um, will go back <laughs> to as we leave this room in an hour. Lord, just strengthen us right now for the journey that we each must walk. So we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, so we're looking this week at John chapter 13. And last week, we anybody remember what happened last week? There's a big event that happens just in John's gospel. We have been, we're at this point in Jesus' ministry where we are no longer in public. Remember, we've gotten gone into the upper room. And um, the... Um, Someone from the last class uh, and I, or for the, from the Tuesday class, and I, I, I'll be glad to um, cite my references, thought of that song from, um, from Les, Mis, Les Miserables, you know, the new musical, or not new, but the musical, and there's a never-ending Road to Calvary song. I won't bother to sing it for you, but we have embarked on the never-ending Road to Calvary as we find ourselves in the upper room. We are in the upper room, and again, what is it with songs? But I think of Mahalia Jackson. We would always listen to this gorgeous song of Mahalia Jackson crooning about in the upper room with Jesus, in the upper room with my Lord, as she imagined herself there with the 12 apostles and maybe other disciples. I actually think there are other disciples as well, not just the 12 um, up in the upper room with Jesus. So we, Jesus has um, left his public ministry, and we saw that in chapter 12, that he's saying, going, 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 gone. Believe in me while you have the chance. And he has, it's like he's starting to hide himself from them. He's trying to get them to believe in him. He wants the crowds of people in Jerusalem to believe in him. And it's sad because you see that not all of them believe in him. And yet he goes and he goes into the upper room. He, his public ministry is ended at that point. And so he will no longer really teach the people in Jerusalem. So you see him in some ways hiding himself. And that's the image of Jesus as the light of the world is now hidden. He's hidden and he is in this private place with his disciples as they celebrate Passover. And there they are in the upper room. What's astonishing in John, does anybody remember what is in the other three Gospels? There's something that happens in the other three Gospels in the upper room that John does not bother to tell us about. Anybody remember what that is? What happens in the upper room that John... John just says, you know what, I, I, you already know this. I think this is what John says. You already know that this happens, so I'm not going to tell you about it again. If you've read the other Gospels... Yeah, Anna, he's, <laughs> you know, the bread. Yeah, he, um, in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see Jesus um, taking bread and bra- blessing it, breaking it, giving it to his disciples and saying, this is my body. And taking the cup after the meal, and this wasn't the wine that they would have with the meal. This is a special symbolic cup that they would each drink from after the meal. And he gives and says, blesses it and says, this is my blood. And those are, what, those are what we call the words of institution. And we say them every time we have a communion service. And you see Paul referring back to those words 
in um, his letter to the Corinthians. And so we know that for the earliest disciples, those were the words by which they were meant to remember what Jesus had done when he went to the cross. And so that, that love feast, that, mess, that, that banquet for those who believe in Jesus and who participate in his death, and by participate in his death, I mean say, Jesus, your death is for me. I receive that. And as we receive what Jesus has done for us, then we also enter into this community fellowship around a meal and that meal is Holy Communion. And so the Lord, the Lord institutes his special supper in the upper room, um, and they didn't probably, know, they didn't know, those disciples didn't know what he was doing until after he had died and risen from the dead. And then they realized, oh, this is, we're supposed to remember this, and we're going to remember it by eating and drinking together um, in this symbolic and special way. Just ignore the sounds next door if you're not used to them. Um, we have lots of, we have a very thin wall and very, as we all know, um, energetic people working out. Um, um, but there is something that John does tell us about that happens in the upper room that the other three gospel writers don't tell us about. So John does not feel the need to say, remember, this is what Jesus did in the upper room. He took bread and he took wine and he instituted this sacred meal. He talks about another event, and that's what we looked at last week. It wasn't last week, because last week we had the fall coffee, so it's two weeks ago. So that's why it's hard. What was it? Let's remember. Anybody remember? Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Barbara? You don't have to, but. They, um, he washed their feet, and when he got to um, Peter, Peter wouldn't let him wash his feet. And he said, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can't come to heaven. And he said, then wash my whole body. Wash my whole body, yeah. You have no, Jesus said to him, you have no part in me. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And what we saw is that that service, Jesus' humility in getting down on his hands and knees and washing the feet of his disciples, he interprets it and he says, the greatest among you must be the least, must be the servant of all. And he shows them what kind of service he's talking about. Remember that feet were dirty and gross, and no one would ever touch another person's feet. That would be um, horrible. You would, it, 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 you know, and even in the Middle East today, if you lift your foot towards someone, it's the worst insult you could possibly give to them. I remember hearing this about diplomacy in the 90s that I think it was um, George Bush Sr. had to learn about not lifting up his, you know, be, you have to be really careful about your feet when you go to visit a Middle Eastern home. And someone threw a shoe at somebody yeah, well, else. Yes. It was a very bad insult. Well, right. George, was it? George W. It was W. Uh, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Bad news. Really bad news. A diplomatic nightmare. But so, <laughs> so when you think about feet, there Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples and saying, you go and do likewise. And yet also, so there's that sense in which there is the command for us to love each other as Christians in the way that Jesus has loved us and served us. But then Jesus goes to show us the extent of his service. And Jesus' service is unique in that his service means that he is the one who will humble himself even to die on a cross for his people. And so there's that sense of in which when he tells Peter, unless, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, he's saying, unless you receive what, I am, uh, what I'm doing for you right now when I wash your feet and what I'm about to do for you tomorrow when I go to the cross, you have no part in me. 
so there's that sense of unity with Jesus through um, his death and through this symbolic action of service. And then that washing is so significant too for us as Christians because washing is an important part of our identity as Christians. When do we, what symbol do we have for that washing and that cleansing? Baptism. We got to see it a couple weeks ago with all those gorgeous little babies at the nine o'clock. We had 10 baptisms and just a reminder of um, this is our entrance into the community of faith, into the church, into the people of God, is that we are cleansed from sin and that we enter in. And yes, we, you know, that cleansing from sin is ongoing. It's completed and yet also ongoing. There's that already and not yet component to it. And yet we are washed because we're washed in the blood of the lamb. Um, so we saw the foot washing last week, and now I, I don't know if you remember me saying this, but we're going to be in the upper room for a long time. Get ready. So chapter in John's gospel, if you just were to put your finger in um, chapter 13 and left, leave your hand there and flip forward, you're going to see, and in my Bible, I love it because I have this Bible is a red letter Bible. And I, you know, you can. I don't feel strongly either way. Oh, you must use a red letter Bible, or don't use a red letter Bible. I think they're kind of cool because I like to look and flip ahead. I'm so visual, and I like to look ahead and see. Oh my goodness! When we get into chapter 14 and 15, it is all red, almost all red. So we're going to hear a lot of Jesus talking, all red in chapter 16 and in chapter 17. And so we're going to be in the upper room for chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. 75 chapters with Jesus in the upper room. So it is, in some ways, the never-ending road to Calvary, and we've begun. Um, so as we begin, we're going to, um, there are a couple things. I'm going to go straight to reading. So I'm in, I'm, if you're wondering where I am on your outline, I'm looking in the context. We've just sort of placed ourselves in the upper room with what just happened. And we're going to talk a little bit about the hour and Jesus' bequest after we read it. Um, and then I'm going to go in and give you a portrait of three disciples um, based on what we're reading now, in part because in this last part of chapter 13, we're going to have, um, we, we don't have a lot of Jesus' teaching. What we have is this wonderful um, narrative that talks about three of Jesus' disciples, three of the 12, and the way they're relating to him there in the upper room after he's washed for the, their feet. Um, and for those of you who know me, I'm, um, I have a background in theater and acting and directing. And for me, spatial relationships are very important. If we can map out where are the disciples, what are they saying, who's saying what, where are they sitting when they're saying it, I think we're going to find a lot of meaning even just from that map. Um, so we're going to look a little bit at some of the themes that Jesus is going to start talking about, and we're just going to um, point those out, and then we'll look at the portrait of three disciples and end on that. So let's read now. We're going to read John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 21. I'll read a couple of verses, and then as you feel led, go ahead and read a couple of verses, and then let someone else take another turn at reading. And we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. 
leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to them. Some some thought that because Jesus had Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Thank you, Sharon. Any thoughts or questions as we look at this passage, um, as we, as you hear it again? Yeah, you Gordon. Were talking about theater and spatial mm-hmm. situation, and I know that they reclined because mm-hmm. the tables were mm-hmm. low and they had more mm-hmm. pillows than chair type situation. But it's interesting to me that. Judas would be close enough for him to have... Oh, don't steal my thunder, Gordon. Let's go. We'll go there in a minute. (laughs) You're you're really... You're you're there. (laughs) We'll... We'll get there. Um, Anything else? (laughs) You should get up here. Well, let's look... um, One of the things that, again, as I was saying with my red-letter Bible, that there's black and red, right? And so if you look at... If you have, if you also have a red letter Bible, just look at verses 21 through 38. Is there a chunk of red where Jesus is teaching and specifically teaching some things? Do you see any verses that are a chunk of red? Ooh, <laughs> Mine has a big chunk of red right at ch- starting at verse 31, verse 31 through verse 35. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that in this little bit, Jesus here is introducing... Oh, oh gosh. There go all my papers. Jesus um, 
Jesus is introducing some themes that he's going to bring back in the next several chapters as we continue to look at the um, Jesus being in the upper room with his disciples. And so um, let's just start with verse 31. Have we and 32? Have we heard this before? Now the Son of Man is glor- it now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So we have a couple of thoughts here. Um, we have the idea of now, um, and we have the idea of glorification. Um, we have, And those are things we've already seen. Does anybody want to tell us any more about that? These themes that we've already seen about time, no, not that side. It's a bad color. <laughs> um, so some of these themes, do you see, he says now. Mm-hmm. What does that now mean? Where else have we seen that? Immediately. Now, immediately. This is the time. Now is the time. Man, we need new markers. This is the time. Now. Do you remember if you were to look back into chapter 12, you would see him saying it as well. <clears throat> if you look at chapter 12, verse 27. What do you? Does someone want to read chapter 12, verse 27? Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Yes. And there we have the same theme, right? We have this idea of time. The, the time has come, the right time. Does anybody remember how we talk about time? There are two senses of time in Scripture, and John uses them a lot. There is Kairos time and Kronos time. And Kairos time is, um, does anybody remember the difference between Kairos and Kronos time? I'll give you a hint. Kronos is the word that we use for chronology. How events follow each other. Yes, on a timeline. I love timelines. They're so nice. So you can put stuff in sequential order and you can say, in 1663, this happened, and then this, and then this, and then this. Kairos time is something very different. Kairos is a spiritual sense of time in God's understanding of the right time. God's timing for a particular event. Um, Whether, no matter what the sequence is, if it's not the right time, then it's not God's chosen time. I think about that even with what we were talking about before before we officially got started with um, when is Jesus going to come back? We don't know. On the timeline of human history in um, the revelation to St. John on the island of Patmos, he had a vision of Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. <laughs> and that was 2,000 years ago. So when we look at chronology, we're like, really soon, Lord? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is coming back soon is not in Kronos time, but in Kairos time. It's God's timing, God's right time. It will happen. 
And anybody who's ever waited for anything, um, we know how impatient we can get um, because on our timeline, it seems like the days and the weeks and the months are ticking by. I don't know if you've ever prayed for something fervently and just not seen the result, not seen what you wanted happening. Well, it's not going to happen until it's God's timing. And God's timing is actually the chosen timing is the best timing. And so what we see in Jesus' life and throughout the Gospel of John is that, does anybody remember how many times Jesus um, almost almost was arrested, almost was killed? Do you remember this from last year when we looked at chapter 8 and chapter 10? Twice it says in John's Gospel, then they tried to kill him. And multiple times they tried to ar- uh, arrest him. And, and just like in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, it also says there in Nazareth when Jesus goes to his hometown, after Jesus preaches in the synagogue, they try to push him off a cliff because they're so upset by what he said. And when you look at what Jesus is saying in the context of the first century, it is a miracle of God that he didn't die sooner. It is a miracle of God that he lived as long as he did. And what we see is that that means that God is in control of his situation. And so what was so important about that for the first century Christians was if your Lord and your teacher and the person you are following died such a shameful death as a death on the cross, then which was the death of a slave, the death of a horrible criminal, um, it was a shameful death, a cursed death. How could you follow someone who was cursed? And they believe even cursed by God. Well, Jesus became a curse for us so that we would not be cursed. Um, Jesus died that shameful death so that we would not die that shameful death. And there's that sense in which for those early Christians, they had to say, well, is God still in control if Jesus died such a death as this? And John is saying unequivocally, yes, God is in control. God is ordaining the circumstances of Jesus' life and death. And we see this as we get ever closer to Calvary. And John is showing it through what Jesus said. He's remembering what Jesus said. Now, now is the time. It wasn't time in chapter 8 when they tried to kill him. It wasn't time in chapter 10 when they tried to kill him. Now is the time for God's purposes to be fulfilled in Jesus' life and death. And there's another word that John uses to describe this death and what what, um, kind of death, what this means in spiritual terms. John uses the word glorification to describe Jesus' death. Does anybody want to say anything about that before we move on to some of the other themes that are introduced right here that we're going to see played out? These are themes we've talked about a lot, so please forgive me if you're sick of talking about them. It's fine. Does anybody remember about glorification in John's gospel? It's I'm so, I'm such a nerd about geography, or not geography, well, clearly, geometry. (laughs) Tell us about the parabola, Liz. It's glorification, the bottom one, where it's unexpected. Right, and the language that John uses at the low point, what we would expect would be the low point of anyone's existence, dying on a cross, John is saying, No, look at this event with spiritual eyes because here the God of the universe is going low, is humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And even in the death on a cross, the cross was raised up. And I often think of this when I think of Jesus on the cross. I think of the women around his feet. You know, his feet, maybe his feet were at eye level 
or his feet were so accessible because he was lifted high up. And in our terms, and when we talk about worship, we talk about exalting God, raising God up, worshiping him, magnifying him. There's always that up direction when we talk about praising God. And John is using that to say, this is an exaltation of Jesus. He is glorified. God is glorified through his death because many will be brought back to God through his death. And Jesus is glorified. And um, glorified because um, we serve and worship a God who doesn't lord his lordship over us, but who humbles himself to become like us in our weakness, to redeem us from our weakness. Um, and so that is that's glory. Glory. <laughs> glory, hallelujah. That's, that's a lot of glory. Um, so John uses that sense, that direction of down and up, to say, no, really, this death of Jesus is incredibly important. Now you know who he is. After reading John's gospel, you have this sense of how important Jesus is, that he is the word made flesh. And now we're going to see God himself, the word made flesh, going to Calvary. Um, so I'm going to erase this. Sorry. Um, because there are more themes. Does anyone want to read verse 33? These are themes that John is introducing here, that Jesus is giving us a little taste of what he's going to talk about for the next several chapters, so I won't dwell on it very long. I just want to give you a teaser of what's coming up, because we're going to see these themes again and again throughout the Upper Room Discourse. Verse 33. Yes, please, ma'am. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And can you read the next one for me, too, please? So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say this? That's good. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and when we flip back, um, when we flip back to verse thir- or chapter 13, too, we see that in this introduction into these themes in the upper room that we're going to see, there is this sense of glorification and the hour that's there in chapter 12 as Jesus is going, going, gone going away from the crowd and hiding himself, essentially removing himself from the public life of Israel and going into this private life with his disciples. And then when we get to chapter 13, there is this word that he's going to use to describe his disciples. Yeah, in verse 33, um, he's going to call them little children. And this idea is going to be repeated for the next several chapters. It is glorious. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you what chapter. So it's, yeah, he is going to um, talk about his own. He's talking to his own, um, his own disciples, and he uses such tender words as little children. And he'll go on to say he's not going to leave them or us, his little children today, as orphans. Um, but there is another, um, another person of the Trinity, the Comforter, the Advocate, who will, will come and be with us in Jesus' bodily absence. So Jesus is bodily absent from our midst, and yet the Holy Spirit is present. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is also present in our midst. So we are not orphans. Um, we are his own children. So even in verse 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with me, with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews... 
just as he said to the crowd just before in that chapter 12, where I am going, you cannot come. Where Jesus is going, we cannot follow, not yet. And he's going to talk about that some more in chapter 14. Um, So we're going to see this in John 14. Continued, this theme of Jesus' departure and the belovedness of the disciples in his eyes and that he's not going to leave them alone even though he's going. Um, And I think of that Godspell song, you know, um, there's this beautiful song, Where Are You Going?, that the women sing to him as Jesus um, is in the upper room in that day before his death. Chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 is another theme that is introduced here in chapter 13, and we're going to see it carried out. We're going to see it again in chapter 15. Does anyone want to read that? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This theme of love and this new commandment is something that Jesus introduces. I mean, it's all throughout scripture. But we see Jesus commanding his disciples to do this. He mentioned this earlier last um, in the first part of chapter 13. And what's amazing about it is that he commands them to love as he has shown them what kind of self-sacrificial love he is commanding because he embodies it. He loves us first. How can we love him but that he first love us, loved us? How can we love each other? but that he first loved us. And so it's true that there is this vertical component in our love, in the love that God has commanded us to have for each other as Christians. And that love happens, uh, maybe the arrow ought to be the other way around. It's not us to him, but the love of God coming down for us in Jesus. And so there's that downward direction to God's love. He extends himself to us, and we are transformed by it when we are feeling empty and like wow I really can't love my neighbor and when we're honest about it wow that person really gets on my nerves and I see them every week in church the only way through that is not to say well, let me just do this and this and this and this and this to be better about it it's to receive more of God's love for us because it's in receiving that love again and again that our hearts are transformed and that our wills are transformed to, be, to begin to be able to love each other somewhat like anything, like even just a little bit like the way Jesus has loved us. Mary Gibson used to say, you don't have to like them, just love them. <laughs> it's true, and I think, <laughs> but I will say, I will say, I think in that, as you start to love, as you ask God to change your heart, so that you can love the people you don't even like. It's hard, even harder to love the people that have really hurt you. That's the hardest love, I think. And then the lo- loving the people you don't even like. Um, I do think that in praying that prayer and asking God to, <laughs> to cause our hearts to change so that we can love the people we don't like and love the people that have hurt us, um, I do think he even is so, I think he has such a sense of humor that he brings us up around to the point where we can actually even like them too. Which is funny. I've seen that. I've seen that happen in myself when I, and it had nothing to do with me. And seen it where it was even like, oh, I really like that about that person. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago I would have been like, no, I can't believe they do that. Um, So 
there is this call, this new commandment to love one another. And we're going to see that again in chapter 15 as Jesus talks about being the true vine. So any questions about that before we move on to the main, <laughs> the main part of this study, which is the, um, the three disciples that we're going to look at? I'm going to erase this. Any thoughts? This is a preview, a preview of what's to come. Well, I was just thinking, if it weren't for Jesus and his love and God's love, would there be love? I know, that's so I mean, <laughs> I mean, it would be maybe, you know, sexual love or something yeah. like that, but would it be agape or, right. you know, and you're hitting it because essentially we, we use the word love. Oh, it's such a watered-down word so often. I mean, just think of a pop song. I love, uh, uh, you know, I had this acting teacher, my voice teacher, when I was acting, and she said, if someone says to you, if you're, you know, dating someone or something or whatever, if your significant other says to you, I really love you, mm-hmm. like, like that, in their head voice, and like eyebrows raised, like I really mean it. I'm really trying. I really love you. She's like, she said, run. That <laughs> <laughs> there is a sense of love. Is love is deep down into the very core of our being, and that that kind of eros, the romantic love that we exalt as a culture, is nothing without the rootedness and the groundedness of the the just the basic human love the love for one another that can come only from God himself and so you're right in that that we wouldn't know what real love and I don't I don't mean true love like true love romantic love I mean love we would not know what love was if we didn't know it through God and then not just through God but he makes it manifest to us in Jesus and so you hear all around that you know in very broadly, sort of surfacely Christian, forgive me, Lord, for even saying this, but surfacely Christian experiences, you hear people saying, God is love. Well, yeah, what kind of love is God? Is the God, God the kind of love, um, is the kind of love that God has for us the kind of love that says, um, uh, you know, uh, I will not forgive you for doing this, or the kind of love that says, this is completely unacceptable. I'm going to walk away, or the kind of love that says, I'm going to walk with you in the midst of this. I really don't like this about you, and I'm going to help you change this. What kind of love is God's love for us? And I think it's so important to qualify that and look at Scripture. That's what we do. We look to Scripture to say, okay, if God is love, what kind of love does that look like? And that informs us about how do we love each other. What about Muslims? What about them? <laughs> I'm just thinking, don't they teach that you're supposed to love one another. They do. But do they have the cross as that epitome, epitome of, well, neither do we very well, I must say. I hate to say it. But they, but they don't have, remember this, I put this directionality, remember there's God's love for us made manifest in Jesus. We respond in love to God. And he empowers us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He transforms us on his timeline. Darn, it's Kairos time, not always when we want. Lord, I really want to love this person right now. And it doesn't always happen, but it can. Um, But there's this horizontal love too. And it is a picture of the cross, isn't it? That God's love for us has that downward direction first and foremost. And the Muslims don't have that. And so when I hear, you know, that they teach about love, well, what? 
what does that again love as a term is so vague is it a warm feeling is it a you know what does that mean and um and so yeah and so i would say they don't have this informing them about what that means and we're the only faith that has the cross that has god himself entering into the created world to um, redeem us as individuals and as a full creation and bring us back into relationship with God and into a healed, uh, and to give us real, true, um, sure, steadfast hope that we can stand on for a reconciliation in our own relationships with each other. We'll talk about that a lot more, I guarantee you, once we get to chapter 15. Let's look for right now, let's, look, let's continue to look at chapter 13 and let's start looking at the blocking. So does anybody remember when we talked about, okay, so there they are at this dinner party in the upper room. Does anybody remember the blocking of the dinner party in chapter 12 at the beginning in Bethany? Does anybody remember where, what, what would they, you started to tell us, Gordon, they didn't sit at tables and chairs. Um, because remember when the, when the woman, when Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus' feet, she didn't get down and crawl under the table and anoint him. That would be even weirder. <laughs> it's weird what she does, but that would be even weirder if she crawled under the table. Rather, the blocking tells us that um, the table was sort of this, oh, bad marker again. I'm going to try this one, and then I'm going to go. The table was this round, central thing, and the food is on the table. This is um, bread, because we knew they ate that. No, you're fine. Thank you. You're so nice. No, not that I know. It's wimpy. It is wimpy. I'll go back to the red. Um, so the food is on a low table, and then around the table are, um, instead of chairs, in the ancient world, they reclined to eat on these couches which to me sounds like a really bad idea if you have any kind of indigestion like the way I get indigestion. It's not horrible. I mean, how could you recline and eat? It, it just the direction is all wrong. It's not going down. It's going to sort of come right back up. But that's what they did. Clearly, someone figured it out. We don't do this anymore. But <laughs> so there they are reclining in this U shape around this common table. And on the table were the bread and the wine and whatever else they might be eating. I'd like to think there was hummus at the Last Supper, but I don't know. Hummus and grapes. Yeah, some grape leaves. Yes, definitely. So, um, and the guest of honor sat here, or the host sat here. Usually it was the guest of honor. And who's the guest of honor at the Last Supper? Jesus. So we have Jesus. He's sitting here, but he's not sitting. He's reclining. So there's Jesus reclining. And if you can imagine, I know that looks like an upside-down lollipop, but he's reclining, and he's reclining. His feet are out. So remember the... Um, his head is to the table. His head is towards the table. I've his, always thought it was a lamb, but it's not. Okay. His head is towards the table, which is why at Bethany, when he's also reclining, she can get to his feet really easily because they're sticking out. She just had to walk up and be like, oh, there's feet. And they were probably right in front of her, you know, at this at this height. And she could just say, oh, look, there are his feet. She didn't have to crawl around under the table. So he's lying on his stomach? Lying on his, sort of side. On his, on his side. side. With side. It, in the, I don't know about the Middle East, but in India, when I traveled to India, do you know what you're never, ever, 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 ever supposed to do? 
skate with your left hand. Shake with the what? Shake with your left hand. Touch anyone with your left hand. And when you eat at the table, your left hand cannot be on the table. And do you know why? It's gross and bad because you don't have any soap and you don't have any of the normal hygienic things that we have because you don't have any plumbing. And so your left hand does the dirty work. <laughs> and if you don't have any soap, then the left hand, they at least knew, well, the left hand should not touch the food ever, ever, ever. My germs should not get near you. Good for them for figuring that out. And I wonder if, because there are some similarities between India today and the Middle East then, just in terms of no plumbing and food and how do you eat and um, just all, no soap. Um, so it, they, as I understand it, they le lent on their left hand, so their left hand wasn't touching the food. Right hand would grab the food and eat. Isn't that something that he says, my God, just right hand? Yeah, the right hand is an important, is that of the two sides, when you see Jesus, you know, talking about coming in his kingdom, and was it James and John that go up to him and, and want to have special places of honor, and we're going to get to places of honor in just a minute. They want to have a special place of honor in Jesus' kingdom, and the right hand in, in Jesus seated at the right hand of God means he is like, he has all the authority of the Father. He is the Father's right-hand man. Um, and you see that even in Egypt with Joseph. Joseph is the right-hand man of Pharaoh. I mean, he is like Pharaoh himself. And Jesus is actually, in substance, God himself, but he has all the authority of the Father is given to him. Um, and so you see that with James and John ask a really big thing when they want to sit at left and right. And I kind of think because they're jockeying for position, I almost, I sort of get a smile when I think about James and John themselves saying, well, I want the right hand. I want the left hand. There are They want both those seats next to Jesus, but I can even just see them trying. How are they going to figure out who gets to sit on the right and the left between the two of them if they already care, each of them, so much about positioning? I know. Yeah, you could alternate. It's, let's talk about fairness. Anybody who's ever had a sibling knows that fairness is very important. So, <laughs> Justice. Yes. I'm a third child. Can you tell? So here's Jesus. He's in the place of honor. And apparently, these couches would seat three. So there was someone here and someone here. Oh, I know. And it, even though right and left were really important if you're sitting on a throne, this is not a throne. This is reclining. And apparently, this, if you're leaning on your left side, then the person behind you gets to see the back of your head. And in some ways, I think... I don't know why, but what I've read said that this is the place of first honor. This is um, the place of first honor, and this is the place of second honor. And this is going to be important, because now let's look back at the text of what we're reading, because this is my question for you. This is a little game of clue, a little mystery problem solving for us today, a little bit of spatial um, problem solving, because... I'm going to ask you, we're going to try and figure out who is number one and who is number two. Who is sitting in those two seats of honor, reclining in those two seats of honor, right next to Jesus at the Last Supper? Peter and James and Thomas, let's look. Let's look at what, what our passage says today from chapter 13. Because we all, I don't know about you, but I, when I think of the Last Supper, what image do you think of? Yes, yes, Jesus here, yes. and the da 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 da, and they're all sitting, 
and Jesus is breaking the bread, but that would be if they were sitting at a table, like a table like we have it, and if they somehow had, if they were on stage. Because, I mean, if you had a big long table like that, wouldn't you stick people on the other side of the table? Yeah, but Da Vinci wanted, didn't want us to see the backs of their heads. He wanted us to see their faces. So we have, this is this Da Vinci image that we have, but it's not, it's not necessarily what we have in scripture. So let's look at, uh, yeah. In that configuration, if, you, if there were uh, 12 of them, let's just say there were 12 of them at the table, everybody is looking at the back of everybody else's head. Isn't it weird? The whole way they go around. I mean, you're, nobody is facing anybody. I know. So that makes it even Not facing anybody like this. No, but I mean, they're not lying down there. Yeah. And they might have, but if you think about it, their range, they can't go back that way, but they can look to yeah. the middle of the table yeah. okay. and they can see, but it must have hurt your neck. Well, they must have been so yeah. I, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. Never mind that, again. Die, that's what I mean. <laughs> so if we look, let's look at um, verse 21. We're going to start again. Jesus um, is. There he is, um, both human and divine. He knows what's about to happen. He's also troubled in his spirit because he knows what's going to happen. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He has already washed their feet, and yet he knows that one of them will betray him. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him, this one who was reclining close to Jesus, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So here's the first question for you. Let's do this little problem solving. This is like a logic problem. I love these. I'm a super nerd. Okay, so if Peter had to ask someone close to Jesus who Jesus is talking about, is Peter on this couch with Jesus? Do you think? No, because he would have had one of his ears right close. He could have said, hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? But he didn't say that. He said, hey, John. I think it was John. Hey, John, ask him who he's talking about. So Jesus, Peter is, let's just say Peter's over here. Because we don't know. But how much do you think Peter wanted to be over there? Mm. Um, okay, so Peter's saying, hey, disciple whom Jesus loves. Uh, let's look at that. <laughs> hey, you. Um, verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. This disciple is not named throughout the gospel, and the only other disciple of the 12 that is so close to Jesus who is not named in John's gospel is John himself. And when you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you see is that there are 12, and then there are special three. And the special three go with Jesus on super special missions. Like he, they are so close to Jesus that they come with him when no one else is allowed to go. So they go up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and they get to see Jesus in all of his heavenly glory as the veil is lifted and he's revealed in power and they are speechless except for Peter who starts stuttering and talking about what he's going to do and Jesus says, nope. Um, and <laughs> so Peter and James and John are a part of this three. And we don't see John close to Jesus at all, really, in John's gospel, because we don't ever see him named. And yet, tradition has told us that this gospel is the testimony of John, 
John, that beloved of Jesus, that third, one of the three. And so if you f- just keep your hand, I'm just going to flip to John 21, and you can mark it if you want, but you don't need to turn there. In John chapter 21, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee with Simon Peter, and he reinstates Peter after his betrayal. And he's also there with another disciple. And so it's in uh, John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And then John goes, you know, the evangelist goes on to say, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This disciple is very important in John's gospel, but he goes on as being unnamed sort of weird to write a story about yourself but not name yourself or where do you what what dilemma do you put in how do you put yourself into a story Um, and John I believe John he might have put his name in but I think that he would have been humble enough um, not to say that he was loved more than the other disciples and one of the best theories about who is the beloved disciple in John's gospel is the one that says well John wrote down the gospel of John, and he wrote it and he gave it to his community at Ephesus, which is where John was in leadership. That's the church that's associated historically with John. And so, um, and then that community loved their leader so much that they took his gospel and they wrote in afterwards and they said, you know, the one he really loved because we really loved him upon his death. Wouldn't you write in um, to um, anything about a beloved leader? You would say, you know, the one that we really love and the one that Jesus really loves. And so you see this disciple acting in an exemplar way. We see him as an example of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so in some ways it is both John and then even an idealized version of John through the eyes of that first community that loved him so much. And John John is beloved, and he's awesome, and he's my favorite, and this is my favorite gospel, and you're not supposed to have favorites, but he is not perfect. Jesus loved him, and yet um, Jesus loves each one of his disciples, and he loves each one of us. And we're going to see this right now. In So if, if John is the beloved disciple, and I would say, yes, indeed, he is, there he is leaning back on Jesus his head right at Jesus' heart, leaning right there on Jesus' breast in the bosom of the Lord. And so his head would be on this side. So if they're leaning like this, right, and John is right here, and he just leans back and says, Hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? Who is it that's going to betray you? That is just between John and Jesus. Only John and Jesus know what's going on there, except for Peter, who asked. Ask John to ask. So I do think this is John right here. I'm going to put a little heart. Beloved. And here's Jesus' heart. He is right close to Jesus' heart. So there's John. One part of the mystery solved. Who's on the other side? Why do you think so? How does Jesus going to give him bread? Yeah. Jesus is going to say... Here's some bread. So Jesus leans back onto Judas's breast and gives him the bread. And um, it's so hard to read this part of the gospel. In this part of the gospel, this is the only place where John uses the word Satan, the name Satan. 
So John has asked, instigated by Peter, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you what you are going to do do quickly Jesus here is extending to Judas one last chance he is saying Judas I love you you're in the seat of honor you're the, you're in the seat of honor at this special dinner Judas you are right here you are close to my heart will you not leave off on this treachery giving him one last piece of bread, the piece of bread extending, if the guest of honor were to give you a piece of bread to share off their own plate with you. I have this weird thing where I love food so much that when I go to a fancy restaurant, I don't care how well I know you, I really want to taste your food. And it's <laughs> it's bad. It's like socially really bad, and I recognize that. So I have to exercise some self-control and be like, oh, you should get that, yeah, yeah, and I want to taste it, even when I don't know someone very well, because it is a very intimate act to share food with another person. And just as that's true today, it's true in Jesus' day too. Jesus, by sharing this bread with Judas, he is begging him. He is saying to him, really, don't do this. I love you. Stay here with us. Don't do this. Ordained. It has been foreordained, and he knows that. But I think this is a great question for predestination. When you look at God knows the end from the beginning, Jesus is going to die. Jesus knows this. He's going to die through treachery. And yet, does he really want this little lamb of his, whose feet he's just washed, to enter into this kind of depth of sin? No, he doesn't. If, it, if you know, God would find another way to save his people... And um, it would be all right. You know, the Lord can handle this. The foreordained death of Jesus might still happen. But to say to Judas, because then we have to ask, well, is God trying to get us to sin just so his plan can be set forth? No. I still think he is begging Judas, just like he's begging those in the crowd, come, believe in me. Come, believe in me. And they continue to turn their backs. And is that a hardening of the heart just like the way... Pharaoh's heart was hardened in Egypt, perhaps. But you see God not um, in his um, wrath saying, how dare you betray me, but rather saying, come, come back. Don't walk away from me. I see Jesus in his compassion, in his love, reaching out one last time to Judas, saying it's not too late. You don't have to do this. Stay here. Eat with me. Lie here. I love you. Um, and Judas um, resists. Judas goes the way of his own sin and his own flesh and betrays Jesus over to the chief priests. And um, so in that, we have three portraits of discipleship. We have um, walking away from Jesus, walking away from his love. And again, in that, it, is it in Judas's own strength or, or is it foreordained? There's this sense in which... Um, we have this feeling of resisting Jesus at times, and yet our prayer ought to always be, Lord, let me not resist you, even when I'm not even aware that I am turning away from you. Turn me back to you. Turn me back to you, because you are the one who can do that. So it is, it's hard, Mary Kay, it's a both and, and this is, we could talk about that forever. Um, but there is, in a sense, here, a both and. Come back, Judas, come back. 
Um, and Judas does not come back. But then with John and Peter, we see Peter. Peter is, um, at the end of this passage, i got to really wrap it up because you got to go. Peter is there, and Peter's saying, I will follow you to the end of the world. I will die. I will be one of those martyrs in North Korea if you ask me to Jesus. I will follow you to the cross. And the truth of it is that no one of us can follow Jesus to the utmost, to the point of death, were it not for Jesus dying for us first. And so Peter is here saying, I got it. I got this one, Jesus. I'm going to follow you till the ends of the earth. I will die with you. And he is so confident. It's so cute, isn't it? It's so much like us. He is so confident in his own strength. And Jesus loves him and just sort of says, you will actually follow me, but not right now and not in the way that you think and not in your own strength you sweet, beloved disciple who's well-meaning but very wrong. <laughs> um, and so Peter is eager, as always. He is overestimating and confident in his own faithfulness, his own strength. He is not necessarily humble. He misunderstands the plan. He thinks he can do it, and yet he can. And yet he is still um, beloved of Jesus. He's still one of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus reinstates him for um, his pride and his overconfidence. And we see that later on. We'll see that at the end of the gospel, that um, Peter has a very important place in the ministry, in the Christian ministry, and in the early church. He is one of the best, biggest leaders. And John, this idealized picture of discipleship, um, which is just simply here. There is Peter, I will follow you in my own strength. And there is John just leaning back on Jesus' breast. I got nothing. I'm here, and that's all that matters. John is there resting at, on Jesus' heart. Um, and that's the place where we need to be because it's the place where we are um, not overconfident in our own strength, but rather just relying and resting on Jesus. Um, and that's the point from which we find strength to go out and do the things that we're called to do is from that place of rest. Um, so um, let's pray and then you can go. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your death you have shown each one of us to be just as beloved as John. Um, and we look to you and we ask that you would give us that gift of rest and resting in you, resting and leaning back upon you. Um, even give us that gift, oh, just even for today and then for tomorrow and the next day and the next day too. But for today, give us that gift, Lord. Give us that rest that comes only from knowing that you are God and you are good and that um, you have redeemed us from sin and from death and the devil and that anything else that comes our way is not something um, that we can handle on our own, but it's rather something that we can very much handle in you because you will handle it for us. So fight for us, strengthen us, give us that perfect peace and rest that comes from knowing you and loving you. Thank you for your great love for us. Um, and we ask all of this in your strong name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.